kids in our congregation take notes, try to follow along in the sermon and either get some of the main points written down or things that the, that the Holy Spirit was speaking to them or, or draw a picture of, of what the, uh, the scripture was about. We had a lot of pictures of Jesus on the mountain being transfigured from, from Mark chapter 9. And so, uh, so kids, if you take notes, I love seeing these. You can turn them in. There's a hallway uh, by the lobby there. There's some white boards with magnets, and you can post, uh, post the, um, your notes for the pastors to see. But I just want to uh, take a, a minute to acknowledge some of the kids that, that turned in some notes. Uh, Sochi Jobes, Juliana Lim, uh, Isabel Tan, Everson Archer, Blaze Fredette, Jonathan Jobes, uh, Jacob Tan, Lily Bolt, uh, Gabrielle Fredette, uh, uh, Lydia, uh, Lydia Rosenberg, uh, no name on this, but a good picture of Jesus with his disciples up on the mountain. And uh, uh, Caleb Oneschak, he, he wrote at the top of his notes, the biggest takeaway, and this is what is the biggest takeaway from, for him was, the only thing that can hold everything together is a God who is love. I was just thinking about that. The, it, the thing that holds things together is love. You know, the thing that holds a community together is love. The thing that holds the universe together is love. And uh, I just think profound truth for a young mind. Um, Rose Brown, uh, Sarah Rosenberg, uh, uh, Catherine uh, Neff, uh, Chloe Paybody, uh, Adeline Lundy, Eleanor Lundy. Eleanor Lundy had notes and a picture. Uh, B. Lundy, Rhea Moline, uh, Josiah Neff uh, also had notes and a, and a picture of the Transfiguration and uh, Grady Smith and Izzy Smith. So I uh, love seeing these notes, that thinking of God's word dwelling in these young hearts and minds. So... Uh, so we're going to turn now to God's Word. And so if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the passage that we're going to be studying together is printed right there for you in the bulletin. We're in, in Mark chapter 9, a really profound uh, story about the Lord uh, Jesus. So um, you can follow along right there. This is the Word of the Lord. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately... Uh, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I uh, to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy uh, to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he, he said, from childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him 
and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hands and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The grass withers, And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, and we uh, pray for your Holy Spirit to now uh, instruct us. Apply these words uh, written, authored by you so many years ago, and now apply them into our lives Lord, we thank you. You know each one of us, and with such care and precision, you can speak to our souls and minds and hearts. And so we look to you to be our teacher now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So our topic today is unbelief. uh, Which I think is an incredibly important uh, topic for our cultural moments. Uh, in, in just the last 15 years, I was reading recently some uh, uh, Pew Research uh, statistics that says that the number of people who identify as Christian in our culture has, in, just in 15 years, gone down by 20%. And the number of people who identify as nuns, a nun is a, someone who has no religious affiliation, has uh, doubled in just 15 years in our culture. And so uh, that makes up now about a third of our population. So there is a growing sense of unbelief in our culture. And I think just uh, anecdotally, many of you have experienced that. I think most of us, if you've grown up in the church, most of us know people who maybe grew up in the church with us who um, have uh, deconstructed. Uh, Deconstruction means uh, someone who grew up in the church. When you grew up in the church, you have all these things that you just take for granted, that you assume. My family believed in God, and they believed in Jesus, and they believed in the Bible, and they believed in the church. And then they come to adulthood, and they start to question all these assumptions that were just assumed in their family growing up. And, and for many of them, going through this process, they lose their faith in the process. And deconstruction is interesting because in some ways, all of us have to deconstruct because none of us had a perfect upbringing, either in the church or in our if you grew up in a Christian family, it, it was perfect. So there's certain things that you say, you know, my family didn't quite get this right or my church didn't quite get this right. And, you, you know, there's things that we have to uh, evaluate. Um, uh, but the problem is that whenever you doubt something, it is always coming from a place of faith in something else. So, for example, if you doubt that the, the historicity of the gospel accounts of Jesus, you say, well, I'm not sure I trust that the Bible is accurate. Well, what are you trusting in? You say, well, I, I, I believe uh, another historian, or I believe other professors, or I believe my own mind. It doesn't make sense to my own mind or my own emotions. And so, um, for many modern people, the thing that we trust above all else is our own mind and our own emotions. And the Bible tells us, that both of these things are unreliable. And, uh, and so it turns out that uh, unbelief, unbelief is a central theme of this passage that I just read about a man who had, whose son had an unclean spirit. 
And the man uh, says these famous words. I know that for many of you, if you've read through the Gospels, these words resonate with you in verse 24 where it says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He says there's two sides to me. There's a part of me that wants to trust God and believe in it, and there's a part of me that has doubts and has questions. And, and, and he says Jesus is the only one who can help him with his unbelief. And, of course, Jesus responds to this man with compassion, with love, and with power. And so uh, today I'd, I'd like to talk about unbelief by making two main observations from this passage I just read that I think are very relevant to us. This is what they are. Is that first, unbelief is a cultural reality. Unbelief is a cultural reality. And second, therefore, unbelief cannot be overcome by our own power. So two things we're going to talk about. Culture is an, uh, unbelief is a cultural reality. And second, therefore, unbelief cannot be overcome by our own power. And I want to say this just as, as we're starting. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm struggling with doubts, I'm I'm not sure what I believe. There's parts of the Bible I don't, that I'm not sure what I believe. I'm not sure what I think about the church. We just want you to know that we are glad that you're here. Uh, this is a place where we want to talk to you about those deaths. About, the best way to deal with those is to talk about them, and this is a church where you can talk about those doubts, and, and a place where we want to help people overcome those doubts so that they can have a heart that really trusts in the goodness of God and the truth of his word. Okay, so two points today on unbelief, and the first is this. Unbelief is a cultural reality. Unbelief is a cultural reality. And what I mean by that is I think that we often think of doubt or unbelief in very individualistic terms. You know, we think in our culture, well, everyone has their own private religion, and you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and we just kind of all leave each other alone. And and we kind of get the idea that basically, well, I just assessed all the facts about God, and I decided what I believe in. It's my personal thing. And... um, Uh, But you'll notice the the phrase that Jesus uses in verse 19 where he says, O faithless generation. He's saying that unbelief is is not just an individual thing, but it's a whole cultural mood, it's trend that can belong not just to individuals, but to a whole generation of people. And we are living in the middle of just such a cultural reality. And so what does this passage say? If If you're a a person living in a culture that the spirit of the age, the whole movement of the age is towards unbelief, what do you need to be on guard against? And uh, let me just point out two observations from this passage, okay? The first thing to be on guard against is that unbelief focuses on the failure of Christians. Unbelief is focused on the failure of Christians. And you'll notice how this passage begins in verse 14, how it says... And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So there's some kind of debate that is happening here. And the scribes who are suspicious of Jesus, they don't believe in Jesus. They want people following Jesus. And they're having a dispute with Jesus, some of Jesus' disciples. And all of a sudden, Jesus arrives. And then it says in verse 16, and Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about? And the passage tells us what the argument, what the dispute was about. And look at what it is in verse 17. 
And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that has made him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. The scribes are raising doubts about Jesus by focusing on the failure of the disciples. The scribes are raising doubts about Jesus by focusing on the failure of the disciples. And in the deconstruction movement within the evangelical church in our day, this line of argument is dominant. People will say, Christianity promised me so much, you know, healing and hope and unconditional love, and the church has been a major letdown. And uh, some of you... uh, maybe you've experienced that, maybe you've heard that thought. And, and you might feel very empathetic to someone who's saying, you know, the, the church has let me down, and so I don't know if I believe in Jesus, I don't believe in the Bible anymore. And so the question is, how does Jesus respond to that line of reasoning? The answer might not be what we expect. Verse 19, and he said to them, O faithless generation, how long Am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Maybe you were expecting something more empathetic than that. There's not a lot of empathy in in that statement. In fact, he just shuts it down. Now, I don't mean that Jesus has no compassion from people who've suffered because of the church. We know that in other places of the gospel. It says Jesus looked out on the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were, you know, they were abused and and, uh, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so that stirs Jesus' compassion. But doubt is never affirmed in the Bible as noble or honest or authentic. We have to, and, and we have to be the same way. The failure of Christians is absolutely no reason to think we are now justified to doubt God himself or his word or even abandon his church. And Jesus is actually merciless in shutting that, that line of reasoning down. And some of you might say, oh, were well, you saying that we should never criticize Christians when they fail to do Jesus' mission faithfully? Absolutely not. Jesus rebukes his disciples all the time. And if you just read through the Bible, the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, you're going to find the failure of Christians, of disciples, in, inside the church throughout all ages. Just look at yourself. See yourself that Jesus brought into this church. You see your own failures. Of course, there are going to be sins and failures. The Bible is realistic about this. And in fact, the only way to accurately judge the failures of Christians is with the Bible. And so faith says, I know that Christians are imperfect and weak, and yet I will still believe the Bible. I'll even still say with the Apostles' Creed, every week we say with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That is a statement of faith to say I believe in that. And the reason is because I trust Jesus. And so why should I stay with disciples of Jesus even if they uh, have failures or they let me down? It's because Jesus stayed with them. Jesus did not dump his disciples in 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 his failings. And I think the big thing for our culture, for all of us to be on guard against, It is always easier to be a critic than to do the real work of a disciple. 
It's always easier to be a critic than to do the real work of a disciple. In this passage, the people who fail and fall short are people who are out there actually doing work. These disciples who Jesus sent out, and they're trying to help this guy who's got a demon-possessed kid, and none of us want to be in that situation where you're like, well, what are we going to do with this demon-possessed and the demon's not coming out? It's, that's tough, and they're putting themselves in that situation. You don't want to be one of the scribes who are always criticizing Jesus' followers but not actually trying to follow him as a disciple yourself. And I'll tell you, in, in, in deconstruction, I've seen this. And I've had people even admit to me. They have all kinds of criticisms of, the, of people in the church. And you say, but what are you doing to love people, to love your neighbor? And they say, that's true, I'm not doing anything. And you're like, wow. And so that's the first guard, is that unbelief is a cultural reality. We live in a culture of suspicion. That is the, the spirit of our age who are always criticizing Jesus' followers. Um, and, uh, and Jesus does not give an ounce of credence to doubt that comes through this line of reasoning. Okay? But the second warning that we see in this passage is that also that unbelief opens a culture to evil. Unbelief opens a culture to evil. And you see in verse 17 how it says, he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Now, just one point of clarification about this passage. You know, some of your Bibles may say, uh, title this story that when Jesus heals an epileptic. And um, I know the ESV, the Bible I have, has changed the title of that. And the reason for that is, you know, should we call what this boy is experiencing uh, epilepsy. Is this comes to some kind of seizure that, that he is having or epileptic fit. And, uh, and I think that there are a couple errors that can come from naming it that. Um, the first error is that we can start to think that all physical problems are spiritual problems. And Christians have done this, where they name things that are physical problems. And that's going to be a real problem. If someone has a physical problem and you start saying, well, you have a demon, we just need to exercise the demon. And you're like, no, they actually are they're sick or they have a disease or something like that. That's actually the problem. And the Bible recognizes that there's both physical problems and there's spiritual problems. And this passage clearly says this is a spiritual problem. And that answers the other error is that sometimes uh, modern people say, uh, oh, actually, in the, back in the day, they thought the reason people had problems was because they had a demon. Now we're modern people, and we know that there aren't demons, and so uh, it, everything is a physical problem. The Bible is much more nuanced and says that there's both physical problems and there are spiritual problems. And in the, this passage, it's clearly a spiritual problem this young man is having. And when Jesus calls this a faithless generation, he's explaining why there are so many demons around in the story of the Gospels. You know, maybe you read through the Gospels, you're like, why are so many people have demon-possessed? It's because this was a faithless generation. And when a, a culture loses trust in God, they open themselves to spiritual evil and spiritual darkness. And as our culture moves towards unbelief, we open ourselves towards spiritual evil. And, you know, when we were talking about this passage as a staff a couple weeks ago, and, and Pastor Matt made the comment that as, as our culture becomes more unbelieving, you know, Christianity becomes replaced with something else. Humans are worshipers. And so it's not like we're going to be a religionless people. And that's why we see there's a, a rise in paganism in, in Western culture. And paganism, historically, 
has brought profound evil and darkness into cultures. Because paganism at its core is a pursuit of power and pleasure as ends in and of themselves. And it always ends up being dehumanizing. And so unbelief opens a culture to spiritual evil. And it is the very nature of evil to distrust God and say we are going to be our own gods. And there's a, 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 a sociologist, Charles Taylor, who writes about the process of cultures moving from being kind of Christian cultures into being more secular cultures. And he's talked about how, you know, the countries in the North Atlantic, whether it's France or Germany or the UK or Spain, where 500 years ago, it would have been just the default if you lived in those countries. The default thing would have been, I believe the Bible. I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe the church is God's agent for the kingdom and the world. And that would have, you, could have been a de, you could have been an atheist, but you really had to work to become an atheist. And now there has been a shift where now it's the opposite. Uh, and the default in our culture is the Bible's clearly not true. Uh, God is not working in our daily lives. Uh, the church is most likely an institution of oppression. And you could believe something different than that. You could believe that the Bible's true. You could believe in the church. You could believe in God. But you're going to have to do a lot of work to do it. And that's the situation that all of us are, are in. We can't just drift along. We're going we're to be bombarded with doubts. And we're going to have to think through our faith and understand why actually this is the best explanation for reality is the God of the Bible, or as I said from Caleb's note earlier, that the God of love is the one who holds all things together. It's going to take work to do that. And so unbelief is a cultural reality. It's a cultural force that particularly focus on the failure of Christians, and it's a cynicism that opens us up to evil. And therefore, unbelief becomes not just an individual problem. It's not an individual problem. It is, a, it, it is a spirit of the age. It's a movement of a whole generation. And we have to be aware that we're living in just such a generation. And so when we realize the force of unbelief in human culture, it makes us realize a second truth from this passage, which is that unbelief cannot be overcome by our own power. Unbelief cannot be overcome by our own power. And if unbelief is a cultural force, we're kidding ourselves if we can just think we can resist it by ourselves. And so I want to show three ways that Jesus overcomes our unbelief in this passage. How does Jesus overcome our unbelief? Three ways. The first is this. Is that unbelief is defeated by telling our stories. Unbelief is defeated by telling our stories. And, and so Jesus tells this man, this man comes and says, you know, I brought my son to your disciples. They couldn't get rid of this demon. And so Jesus says, bring the son to me. And then you'll notice it's interesting what he says in verse 21. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? It's kind of an interesting thing. Jesus basically says, tell me the story. And the man says, well, it's been all the way through childhood. And he throws himself into fire. And he throws himself into water. It's like he's trying to destroy himself. And tell me the whole story of all the terrible things that you've experienced and the turmoil that he's been through as a father and that your son has, uh, has been through. And why did Jesus need to know that? Isn't Jesus God? Doesn't he know the whole story? And I think the reason is because this man's faith 
is part of what Jesus wants to heal, not just his son, but the heart of this man. And we are all born with hearts that don't trust God. We do not trust that God is good, that God has good purposes for us. And, uh, and that's what sin is. Sin is unbelief, a heart of distrust towards God. And then, so we're, you know, we're born with a heart that doesn't trust God. And then we're born into a fallen world, and we're mistreated, we're abused, we experience disappointment, we experience letdown. And what does an unbelieving heart do when it experiences all the brokenness of the world? It says, see, I already didn't trust God. I already, I already knew he, he wasn't good. And then these things happened to me. And they just confirmed that either God doesn't exist or he is not good and does not want good purposes for me. And so all the fallenness of a broken world then reinforces the distrust that we already had in our hearts. And each of us have certain moments of hardening that happen to us where we said, I am not going to let this happen again. That's it. I'm done trusting. I'm done softening and opening my heart. It is time for me to take care of myself and to protect myself. And so, and so often, in order for us to overcome our unbelief and the hardening of our hearts, we have to go back to those moments of hardening and tell the story of this is what happens. We need to see those moments when we harden ourselves and we need to repent and say to God, I already didn't trust you, and this happened, and I trusted you less, and it made it even worse. When you're in a fallen world, to now come and trust in yourself and to say, Lord, where else can I turn but to you? And I'm, I just want to give you all that invitation that the only way you can tell your story is if there's a space to do it. And I, I would just say, as friends in this church and home groups and discipleship groups, there, and it takes time. It takes like, I need an hour to, you know, or I need a few hours to say this is what my story is. But the story does need to lead to repentance to say that story's got to end with a heart that's saying, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And one of the most important things that can happen to each of our uh, one of the most important things that needs to happen in each of our hearts to be believing people is we have to come to see everything we have experienced in life falls under God's good providence. This does not mean that evil things done to us were not evil. Some of you have experienced things that are deeply terrible, and you need to know that they anger and grieve God. They will be judged. He will judge them. He remembers them. He holds your, your tears in his bottle. But God is writing your story. And even though all our stories will include evil and suffering in them, if you are in Christ, you are promised that in the end, you will see that your story was good. And you can't defeat unbelief without being able to say that about your story. And you won't be able to say that about your story probably unless you've told that story to people who love God and believe his word. And, you know, if I could just take one more comment here, you know, telling your story is, is something that we love doing in our culture. And, uh, but we often use our stories um, and the mistreatment that we've experienced as uh, reasons 
to justify and validate our unbelief. And the Bible never does this. I think as we tell our stories, we have to remember the Bible never celebrates doubt by saying, wow, you are so brave for acknowledging that you don't trust God. It doesn't do that. What does the Bible say? Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. The Bible doesn't celebrate doubts. The Bible doesn't affirm doubts, but the Bible gives mercy to people who doubt. And we need to know in this church that as people walk in here, all of us with our doubts, there is mercy and gentleness and patience and love. But there's also an affirmation that if there's anyone in this world to trust, it is Jesus Christ and his holy word. We have nowhere else to turn. And so you see the man in this verse, he says in verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. He doesn't say affirm my unbelief. He doesn't say celebrate my unbelief. He says help my unbelief, and Jesus does. So unbelief is defeated by telling our story. By telling your, uh, but telling your story is not enough by itself. Your story needs to be interpreted, and it can only make sense when it's interpreted by God's word. And so the second way that unbelief is defeated, okay, unbelief is defeated by telling our story, but second, unbelief is defeated by the word of God. Unbelief is defeated by the word of God. And where do you see the mention, uh, only mention of faith in this passage? It's in verse 24, where it says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. And where did that faith come from? Well, it's the verse right before it, in verse 23. It's Jesus speaking. Jesus' words are what created that faith. And what did Jesus say? He says, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Jesus' words create faith in the man. And that's an important thing for us to understand is that, you know, we often think you need faith to receive God's word, but it's actually God's word that creates faith in your heart. That's what Romans says. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And that's why I would say to someone, you know, if someone's not a Christian, or if you're struggling with doubts, the best thing that you can do is to come to church and hear God's word and listen to it and think about it and understand it and to receive it. Come for a month. Come for three months. If someone comes for a year straight and listens to God's word with an open mind, it will change their life. And uh, one of the things that I, I was thinking about Jesus' words in this passage to this man is that his word included both law and gospel. You know, the law is how God rebukes and corrects and challenges us, and the gospel is how God promises his grace to us. And he does both of them to this man. You see in verse 23, he says, if you can, you know, what, what's he saying to the man? If you can, he's exposing the unbelief in the man's heart. You don't trust God. I'm going to challenge that. I'm going to expose it. I'm going to bring it out. But then he... He speaks the gospel to him. He says, all things are possible for the one who simply believes. And I love how wide open Jesus' gospel is. It's not just that this man's son can be healed, but all things can be transformed and redeemed through the power of God for the person who believes. And so um, unbelief is defeated by God's word. And let me just make another comment about that. Again, our culture puts a tremendous amount of emphasis on our feelings. And the Bible recognizes that our feelings are important. If you read through the Psalms, it's going to interact with all your feelings. Your feelings matter. But often our feelings and God's word will be at odds with each other. And we need to be resolved. I trust the word of God more than I trust my feelings. My feelings matter to God, but they are not reliable. 
His word is reliable. So unbelief cannot be overcome by our own power. Unbelief is only defeated by telling our own story and then having it interpreted by the authoritative word of God through people who love him. There's one last thing that I want to point out is that also unbelief is defeated by prayer. And this passage uh, ends with Jesus uh, rebuking the unclean spirit. And so the boy falls down and everyone thinks this boy is dead. And then Jesus raises him up and it's like this little death and resurrection that happens in the story. And by the way, you know, I didn't have this in my sermon. Someone after the first service made the comment that one of the things that defeats our unbelief is also experiencing God's presence and power. And I think that's true with this father is that we actually need to experience God in our life. And the way that you experience God in your life is through praying, asking God to do what we need. And there's this uh, final note in this passage where it says in verse 28, and when they, they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And it's kind of interesting. Here's the disciples who are trying to cast out a demon. The demon won't come out. And then Jesus says, well, you needed to pray. And you're like, they didn't pray that whole time? They're having trouble? They didn't even pray about it? And it's both surprising. It's also not surprising. I mean, are we really surprised by that? I mean, how many things in our life that we're like, I've been stressing about this for weeks. And you're like, have you really laid this before the Lord in prayer? And I said, I really, I don't think I have. I didn't pray. Without prayer... We are learning to trust in ourselves and not in the power of God. And so, friends, we live in a faithless generation that is hardening its heart to the loving God who created us. And so, constantly, the failure of Christians will be thrown in our face, and the influence of dehumanizing evil will likely continue to grow. So the big message of this passage is, Our unbelief can't be overcome by our own power. It's only overcome by the grace of Jesus who can save us from our own unbelief. And he does it by drawing out our stories and reinterpreting them in light of his his only trustworthy word. And he will strengthen us as we learn to pray, not trusting in our own minds, but telling him, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your word and your, your tender mercy toward us. Lord, we thank you that you don't affirm our doubts, the hardening of our hearts. You don't affirm our bitterness, but you show mercy to us in our weakness. And you welcome us and you want to speak to us and help us work through and overcome our doubts. So we're so grateful for your shepherding hand. And we pray that, Lord, at this church, you would bring many people who are struggling with doubt or unbelief. We pray that this would be a community where people tell their story and come to the end of their stories and say, I trust God. I trust his providence. I trust his purposes. And uh, so, Lord, show us your grace. Show us your goodness and help us, we pray in Christ's name.